The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. Um, so this week I thought I'd take a break from the sort of political monsters that bedevil us and uh, talk about something a bit more fun. Although I think there might be a few um, art monsters out there. Uh, the uh, topic is uh, for uh, this week is the uh, Steven Spielberg's movie, The Fablemans, and the Academy Awards. Um, the, the movie is uh, um, one of the nominees for Best Picture and has several other major uh, nominations. Um, and uh, th I think this has actually been a pretty uh, rewarding movie season in terms of movies that are discussable, uh, like Tar. Um, and uh, But I think of all the movies so far um, uh, that are in contention, uh, The Fablemans, for me, is a movie that I, I keep going back to in my own thoughts. Like, it's a, it's a movie that I think um rewards revisiting um partially because of the subject matter it's a semi-autobiographical film uh, or likely fictionalized autobiography by steven spielberg who is of course the most um successfully uh commercially successful movie makers um in american history and uh is a sort of looming figure in the culture um, and so it's very interesting to see Spielberg uh, revisit his uh, origin stories. Um, and uh, but the movie also has you know a lot of richness about it about um, uh, the story of Jewish immigration and Jewish assimilation, the relationship between art and life. Uh, there's a kind of Oedipal romance at the heart of the movie, uh, which is also very uh, uh, interesting and again speaks to um, not just uh, Spielberg's life but his larger uh, oeuvre. He's the um, um, most mother-loving of uh, all major film directors, I think. Uh, so to talk about uh, the movie, I'm very happy to have on um, Adam Neyman, who is a um, film critic for The uh, Ringer um, and uh, is based out of Toronto, the author of uh, many fine uh, monographs on filmmakers like Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, David Fincher, and uh, my favorite, the Coen brothers. Uh, he's, uh, he's, he wrote a, an excellent book uh, uh, that's a survey of uh, uh, their career. I'm very happy to uh, have uh, Adam on. So we'll talk um, mostly about Spielberg, and then we'll uh, round out the discussion at the end by uh, looking at the um, um oscar season and uh yeah if you're if you're going to be placing bets um uh, maybe we can help you out uh so adam uh thank you for being here no thank you for having me when you mentioned the cohen's i, I know that you're a fan of theirs you've written well on them especially on burn after reading but i was remembering that there was that momentous event where the cohen's and spielberg collaborated when they made bridge of spies which at the time seemed so symbolic to me because in the 80s Spielberg was one face of American cinema you know he was sort of the ruling class the blockbuster class and the Coens kind of had this independent niche and they were seen as very <clears throat> smarmy and subversive and coming from the outside from Minnesota it's funny how as time passes and the film cultural landscape changes and I think the divide between big and small movies gets like so warped and blasted like now Spielberg and the Coens are both on kind of the old classicist side of the ledger and they are like commercial filmmakers whose audiences are to some extent disappearing right because one thing we should say about the Fablemans it's everything that you said that it was and while this isn't maybe the best lens to look at it through it is important to note that for all the acclaim 
the Oscar nominations, the media coverage, the richness and the density of its of its symbolism and just its general interest as a study of this public figure, uh, almost no one has wanted to see it, which is not meant to alienate the audience for this podcast, but it's an interesting thing that Spielberg's yeah. popular instinct seems in the last 10 or 12 years, if it hasn't failed him, it's the, the the culture around him has kind of changed and he hasn't compelled the mass audience in a way like he used to. That's what I think is interesting and why I wonder if at a certain point it drives him back to reflect upon himself because his connection that was unparalleled with a mass American audience and a mass global audience has fritzed a little bit. That's not saying the movies have been bad. Yeah, just position. No, in fact, I, I, mean, I actually, uh, uh, I mean, I don't want to rehearse my own relationship with Spielberg, uh, but uh, I, I actually find the more recent run of movies more interesting than the the sort of uh, big blockbusters. Uh, you know, like I was a kid when uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, came out and uh, Close Encounters, and was thrilled like so many uh, other people. I, I kind of got off the Spielberg bus fairly early um with uh the temple of doom uh which is probably like uh for a variety of reasons but partially because yeah. it was set in india and i was uh, i uh, was born in india and i i wasn't terribly happy with the representation my people were getting uh but beyond that i mean like it sort of uh i became disillusioned with spielberg like at a fairly young age and uh but the more recent run of movies which um you're, you're right to note have not been the big uh blockbusters and even things that you know, might have wanted to be like, I think, you know, remaking West Side Story seems like yeah. a very commercial thing to do. Uh, and, uh, and he did a very uh, uh, good job of it. But I mean, that did not find its audience. Um, and in some ways, it, it seems like the, the odd, um, I mean, we're in a, a phase of rec um, recursiveness uh, in a movie, uh, a film about a filmmaker. And it seems like one aspect of recursiveness is Spielberg is now experiencing uh, for himself what um, Martin Scorsese and Peter Bogdanovich and those other uh, auteurs of the 70s experienced when um, uh, Jaws and Close Encounters came out and they were uh, overwhelmed by blockbusters. Now uh, James Cameron is doing to Spielberg what Spielberg once did to Scorsese. Yeah, no, it, it it's true. And, you know, the, you know, there's it's, it's he's there's so many phases in his career. I mean, when you mentioned Temple of Doom, that early 80s period, not just the sort of like um, the first level criticism that people had, which was that, you know, movies are bigger and louder and dumber and they're not for grownups anymore. I mean, that was something that was always aimed at Spielberg and Lucas to greater and lesser degrees of fairness. Right. But ideologically, if you read a lot of the more interesting political American film critics, not academics, but people like Rosenbaum and, and Hoberman, I mean, they really took Spielberg to task in some ways for yoking like the imperial power of Hollywood production to a kind of very chauvinistically American worldview. And whether you wanted to use words like racist or whether you wanted to use words like ignorant or just childish, I mean, he was called every name in in in, in the book in a way that never damaged his commercial prospects. But what he had, and I see Quentin Tarantino mimicking this aspect of Spielberg's career totally. To me, their mirror images is that they both had these midlife crises around 40 where they decided that movies about movies were not enough. Spielberg ends up treating history very reverently 
in for a long period. He sections off all these different moments in American and global history to try and have the last word on them. That's where you get Color Purple and Empire of the Sun and Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan, even Bridge of Spies, right? And, you know, and the Tarantino does the same thing, but he never loses the movie brat thing. And he makes these metafictional movies that are largely have the same theme that movies can change the world uh, or change history, right? But Spielberg has been in really, really interesting phase since 2000, where then I think some of the stodginess dropped away. And he became this filmmaker whose work was so much more ambiguous and ambivalent and complicated than people had been trained mm-hmm. to allow. If you rewatch Minority Report and War of the World and Catch Me If You Can in Munich, that's his most interesting run as a filmmaker. Maybe not his sight and sound pole greatest movies because, you know, Jaws is my favorite movie of all time. And I will always have time for the, the, the early blockbusters. But he really became subtler and trickier, more complex, harder to peg on a lot of levels than I think critics were used to. Now the phase he's in is like the technical mastery is unchallenged, but the popular instinct is kind of off. I mean, even Lincoln wasn't that gigantic a hit relative to the Oscars that it won or whatever else. No one really wanted to see Bridge of Spies, Ready Player One underperformed, West Side Story underperformed. It just creates a rich context for him to return to something like the Fablemans, like to the primal scene of his own talent. I don't think this movie is nearly as interesting if he's digging into his own mythology and it's the 90s or the 2000s. But at this advanced age and this advanced phase of his career, I think this this point that he's reached uh, as a kind of summation, not a valedictory movie, we hope, but as a summation is really layered and really complicated. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you brought up this issue of sort of uh, complication, because I think that there's a kind of lazy description of the movie, uh, partially based, I think, on the trailer that came out, yeah. you know, like, like, like uh, uh, you know, movies are dreams that, you know, you can always return to or whatever the catchphrase was, uh, the uh, which led people to think that, oh, this is one of those, you know, a movie about the magic of movies. Uh, and, you know, like based on Spielberg's reputation, people uh, kind of pigeonholed it as a sentimental ode to the movies. And you're exactly right that it's actually a very very complicated and I think self-critical um, work, although it also has, I mean, part of the complication is it has a self-criticism and then it also does have this urge to like sort of celebrate, which I think in your review for The Ringer, you kind of brought out this as, you know, like to do, um, it, 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 the two things are, are an interesting tension with each other of having that sort of um uh, ending uh, where he's kind of, there's a laying on of hands and he meets, you know, I think we can do a spoiler because it's the yeah. movie's been out long enough. John Ford, you know, and it is, I, I feel like a kind of, you know, biblical blessing, right? That he gets, you know, the young Spielberg meets the, the Ford and gets the, you know, imparted with the wisdom. And then he goes out and he does a kind of little chaplain-esque uh, uh, leap. And, um, and uh, the camera frame moves in a way that indicates that he has internalized John Ford's lesson. And that's it. And that's a celebratory thing. But within that celebratory ending, you know, the magic of movies, this is someone who loves movies. uh, And in this, we're seeing his origin story. There's also like a much more troubled family story. And also 
coupled with that, a very troubled story about what actually it means to be an artist and how being an artist separates you from life. Um, so the um, so I, I think you're I think you're right to locate this movie as coming out of that those complicated movies of the early two thousands and this this sort of uh, self critical turn that he's taken. Um, but maybe to go back to the, the the beginning. So it is about his childhood, lightly fictionalized, and I think it's very interesting that he could only make this movie after his both his parents died, and they had lived to a very uh, long age. His mother was in her late nineties, and his father was, I believe, um, well over a hundred uh, when he died in uh, twenty twenty. Um, and uh, it reminds me of um, a psychologist uh, Melanie Klein, who said that like you know the death of a parent it gives us permission to narrate. Uh, and so it seems like this is like a kind of story that he had had for a long time. And um, I think in interviews, he suggested his mother actually wanted to tell the story, but the father didn't. And, but, but it is a case that this is almost a classic psychological thing that, you know, the, the permission to narrate came very late in his life. And now he is sort of returning to the origin. So let's talk about those two parents. Because I mean, I mean, as you, I think in your review suggested, you know, the two parents are supposed to suggest the two sides of Spielberg's art. The mother is a sort of thwarted musician who has to become a housewife in the 1950s way. And the father is a you know scientific genius, one of the authors of the main uh, frame computer that uh, revolutionized the world. And there's a suggestion that, you know, like Spielberg has his twin inheritance of art art and uh science but do you want to say anything more about like these yeah no, I'd, I'd love to the twin inheritance of, of of science and sort of you know magic or this of science and artistry and the tension between them and the idea that these are two things that complement each other perfectly but contradict each other as well right i mean the idea he had to wait until his parents were divorced is true but he's been rehearsing and 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 refashioning and revisioning aspects of their divorce for his whole career enough critics pointed it out i don't mind being another one to say it i think it occurred to a lot of people simultaneously when the film premiered that spielberg's divorce has kind of shaped the vo the, the dramatic vocabulary of popular american cinema right yeah. a movie like et which is all about the absence of a father and this mother who's sort of overworked and having a hard time dealing with her kids because of this, this absence. I mean, that movie is right at the beginning of the 80s and sort of becomes one of the, the, the benchmarks for depictions of, of divorce, even if it's benign and even if it's ideal, you feel the absence. Close Encounters of the Third Kind has an insane ending. <laughs> it's an insane ending that Richard Dreyfus is just like, look, I got to go leave Earth to be with these aliens you don't notice in the context of the light show and the, the the world historical consequences of first contact that it's a movie about a, a father who's unhappy i actually did I, you know i saw that movie when it first came out and i was 10 years old and it really troubled me at the time like it's very, wait, it's very, the, the dad is familiar. leaving the family <laughs> like yeah. what is that you know uh, he, and so yeah yeah no you're right it's, 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 it's always been at the heart of his movies you know, it's always been at the heart of his movies, and so I think that you know you used a, you used a couple words back there that I that I like, which is lightly fictionalized. Not only lightly fictionalized, but I think deceptively light in tone, because really, for the first thirty or forty minutes, it resembles that simplified marketing pitch, right? All the stuff of him seeing the greatest show on earth with his parents and trying to recreate the car crash and this kind of kooky family unit where he's surrounded by sisters and women, which doesn't actually make him confident with the opposite sex, but, you know, makes him like weirdly 
you know, overwhelmed and like the sweet kind of um, nebbishy quality that his father has, that stuff always quite light and it's bathed in this haze of nostalgia where it's so enjoyable to look at the clothes and the cars and the various Jewish signifiers, you know, Michelle Williams saying, I burned the brisket, all that stuff. What's interesting is that then without ever changing the visual or rhythmic language of the movie, it gets very upsetting, you know, it gets very upsetting. The visual language doesn't change, but aspects of staging and performance and just incident are like quite dark. And I, I think the moment where he, the two moments where very significantly inside the closet is editing this camping video and sees yeah. evidence of his mother's infidelity and then bringing her back to that same hidden space within the household naked, by the way, yeah. you know, like he's, he's, he's still wearing his swimming stuff. I think at that point, and she's in her usual kind of, you know, elfin sprightly mom clothes. And it's like, here, sit in my closet and wordlessly watch this video of you cucking my, my, my dad. The movie becomes, first of all, like a Brian De Palma movie for about five minutes. Uh, and it also, like, that scene hurts so much. And I don't see how anyone sees that as a love letter to the movies. It's almost like a hate, like like a, a grudging acknowledgement of the movie's power to, like, hide reality or show it, depending on how you edit it. So he's doing so much that is not just about his talent. I was very tired of people just saying this movie is a victory lap around Spielberg's own talent. I think it's more generally, but the responsibility of any artist, any talented artist, which is what are you going to show? And look at all the things we see Sammy make. He remakes all the genre films he sees at the theater because he loves them. It's also a way of showing he's never going to have had his father's experiences. He's never going to have gone to war. He's never going to have had some of those male rituals that, you know, he was born too late for. He tries to inhabit these emotions that are so much more grown up than he has. Like the soldier walking through the field of his dead comrades, which is funny and also kind of appalling yeah. and presumptuous and callow. The way that any young filmmaker trying to make a movie about war is sort of cow. And like by the time he's making his uh, his high school graduation movie, it also reminds me of De Palma. And not just because there's actually a volleyball game that's shot the exact same way as the one in Carrie, but because he's using this tool basically to get back at these kids who've picked on him and these kids who are more beautiful than him and less Jewish than he is. He is being a bully while using his his camera his crowd pleasing has a a bullying quality to it so the fact that he can through his filmmaking get pride from his parents uh help his mother's broken heart over the death of her mom expose his mother to this lie that the entire rest of the family is going to keep repressed for years and and basically also like win fights with kids who would otherwise kick the shit out of him it's a very nuanced reflection on his own skill set. So when I read people, and I'm not going to name the critics or the reviews, but in some big outlets, they're just, they're just like unconscionably shallow readings of the movie where they're just saying, isn't it nice that that kid grew up to be Steven Spielberg? And I'm like, it's not what it's about. No, it's no, no, absolutely. absolutely it's reckoning, reckoning with a lifetime of image making and of the personal consequences and the universal consequences of, of doing that. Yeah, no, I mean, if it is like a sort of triumph of the art artist, it's a, the um, the classic, you know, the wound and the bow. There has to be a sort of injury that is the source of it. Or even, um, I was actually thinking about this, this is actually, uh, could be 
Spielberg's superhero movie that he never otherwise made. You know, Fablemans is sort of like Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, Fableman. Uh, <laughs> and, the, uh, and uh, you know, the the uh, the American superheroes classically have been a sort of uh, outgrowth of the Jewish American immigration experience of the dual identity. And the superhero always has this kind of tragic origin story that the planet Krypton has to destroy, explode for Superman to become powerful on Earth. Uh, uh, Bruce Wayne's parents have to be killed in front of his eyes for him to become Batman. Uh, Spielberg has to have this weird Oedipal drama that he discovers through filmmaking uh, for him to become uh, Spielberg man, the you know superhero <laughs> filmmaker. I mean, if it is the triumph and the tragedy, uh, as with Superman, go together. Uh, so that's the, uh, and, and in some ways, um, to tie in with the Jewish American theme, I mean, it is one of, a lot of critics have, um, who write about superheroes point out this irony of that the you know Jewish American cartoonist, preeminently J Jack Kirby, born yeah. uh, Jacob Kurtzberg, uh, but also uh, um, um, Siegel and Schuster who created Superman, and Bob Kane and uh, Bill Finger who created Batman. You know the, these Jewish creators uh, were working in a kind of um, milieu of a, a, a white America and they had to create characters like Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne who are wasps and we get a little bit of that in the sort of ending of this movie or the 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 one of the final um uh, uh big sequences where you know as you mentioned he's um in high school bullied and anti-semitically in some cases um uh you know uses the power of movies to win a claim by you know shooting a beach movie featuring his other things but then also very subversively casts this Aryan uh foe who's an anti-semite as the hero and you know if we're doing a self-critique you could say that yeah he's answering the sort of criticism of people like Hoberman uh and others back in the 80s that you know what are you doing steven spielberg you're creating these like you know white heroes for like american imperialism and uh he and spielberg shows himself doing that and gives explains kind of why he's doing that but there's also an element of self-criticism there well there's three things about that long passage i mean which is one of my favorite parts of the movie and first of all i love steven spielberg who is this director of childhood experience and coming of age experience, not solely, right? But that's one mm -hmm. of the things that's associated with him and more generally with the decade he presided over because everything from, you know, gremlins to poltergeist to stranger things is described as Spielbergian, even if it's a bit of a misnomer, right? Yeah. So I love that he finally makes a high school comedy, which he's never made. He's mm -hmm. never made a Stations of the Cross kind of high school comedy. It's set a little bit pre-John Hughes era. So the pop culture we associate with 80s high school comedies is a little out of whack. And in the middle of all that, not only is he doing Carrie, because that prom revenge is Carrie without the pig's blood. I mean, it's just basically a, a different kind of revenge, not telekinesis, but, but you know, <laughs> cinephilia. The visual language of the, 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 the Ditch Day movie we start thinking, oh, I get it. That's Jaws, right? But actually, it's Riefenstahl. It's yes, Olympia. Yes. It's 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 Olympia. It's 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 Triumph of the Will, which doesn't mean I think that Spielberg is saying that in in the seventies, not the seventies, in the in the sixties, that he was you know influenced by Riefenstahl. He's playing the longer game with the shape of his career, as you say, with the Indiana Jones movies and their Nazi villains, with Schindler's List, with his status as probably, you know, a, a famous Jewish filmmaker. That, that the, the, the Aryan imagery mocks its subjects. 
it also confronts the audience with the fact of, you know, this is some of the visual language of superherodom, which is very close to the visual language of fascism. It's very easy to engineer that. You see the crowd in the movie reacting to it like gangbusters. But the scene in the hall afterwards is the one that I think is one of the movie's Hall of Fame moments. And this is insofar as you can spoil a biopic. And we, you know, we've already sort of given the big spoiler, which is that Lynch shows up at John Ford at the end, which is a whole other podcast about the symbolism of collapsing those two American filmmakers together. Because, I mean, they are so different in yeah. terms of why they're there. They would end up on Mount Rushmore. I would put them on Mount Rushmore of American cinema, Ford and Lynch, and, and maybe Spielberg too. But but anyway, in the aftermath of the Ditch Day movie, he's confronted by his star, who is so confused at what this young Sammy Fableman was able to make him see in himself. And I've read that scene. I see that scene is very queer coded to me. Yes. That what he sees is the lie of this alpha masculinity that he sort of embodies just by birthright, but it's not really his personality. He's overcompensating for it. And there's a difference between his anti-Semitism, which seems somewhat blustery and puffed up, and the real sociopathic nastiness of the other kid, yeah. who he defends Sammy from, who's really a shithead. Yeah. This guy sort of, he kind of like sits down and offers him a cigarette, and he's like, how'd you make me look like that? It makes me uncomfortable that you're able to do that, because that's not me yeah and i thought that that's getting into territory like psychological interiority and whether it's explicitly queer or not that's the stuff that people think spielberg's first of all not interested in and that he's never really staged before but it's right there on top of which sorry as i finish my thought the sheer pettiness that if that <laughs> happened that 50 Friggin' years later, Spielberg has this scene where the guy's like, don't you ever tell anybody about this? And he's like, I won't, I won't, unless I make a movie about it one day. I mean, I was laughing at that for days because he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 I, and I should say, but I, uh, in your review of The Ringer, you quite uh, rightly brought up the importance of the man who shot Liberty Vance and the uh, the, um, the yeah. famous line, you know, print the legend. And now in the interview, Spielberg has said that that hallway scene uh, and th that whole, uh, you know, creating the beach movie, that all happened, he says. But I mean, I you never know uh, what to make of these claims. Um, uh, as with the claim that the John Ford encounter happened, like, yes, it happened, but you're a storyteller, you reshape it in your memory, and then you film it, and then, and then that becomes a reality, right? Like, he, he has printed the legend, and so now well, that is, is the reality. Well, what is the subtext of what Ford says? The, sub, the, 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 the famous line that Spielberg has cited before, and which is totally in line with any aesthetic analysis of Ford, is he says, don't shoot things head on, Yeah. right? So I'll just, I'll, 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 footnote that for a second to say that's why i love the casting of david lynch because maybe not in a geometric sense but because david lynch has never seen the horizon straight on i mean david lynch puts the horizon literally or figuratively all over the place because he's he's a director of inner landscape so the idea of david lynch of all people ventriloquizing john ford's advice which is just as long as he's as long as the horizon's up or down you have an interesting image i think is beautiful but you know i think that that what that that the subtext of what Ford is saying is that you always have to have a slightly unnatural or exaggerated or personal angle on something, that anything that is straight on is somewhat boring. And that moment you mentioned where he's on the back lot 
and he does the little chaplain-esque walk into his own glorious future. I love when the camera reframes. Yeah, it's a visual joke, but it's almost as if Spielberg is saying sometimes he needs that reminder because there is a tendency he has maybe to be a little bit square or there's a tendency he has to sometimes be a head-on. That little camera hop and jump, I think, is the voice in the head of every artist, which is just, am I being lazy? Or do I need to remember my first principles? I mean, there's a whole other podcast you could do about framing in Spielberg, which is that his brilliance almost has, the quality of it is neither positive nor negative. It just kind of is. Even the people who hated him in the beginning, who looked at Jaws as an empty scare machine, or who looked at Raiders of the Lost Ark as conservative propaganda, they're like, it's annoying because he's so good at filmmaking, right? <laughs> the prodigy aspect that you see of Sammy Fableman is is true, but it always has to be good in relationship or in reaction to something. So the visual jokes in the Fableman's about Ford and about Riefenstahl and about other kinds of movie making, they contextualize Spielberg's gift. It doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of, and actually the one review that was semi-negative about the film that I have to give it up to because he's such a smart critic always is Richard Brody saying what's missing in the Fablemans is television. That yeah. part of Spielberg's own real legend, as he has said it, and part of the visual vocabulary that he built is tremendous exposure to TV, which you never see him watching. Right. Which I think is an interesting absence because a lot of the war movie stuff and even the Western stuff would have kind of been taken off TV. You know, a lot of people yeah. compare this to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is an interesting comparison. But in that movie, that's all about how around that same time in the 60s, TV is cannibalizing and diminishing movies. So, you know, and Spielberg started as a TV director. I watched his Columbo just a couple of weeks ago just to rewatch it because it's so great. And, you know, he he. He obviously drew a lot from the visual vocabulary of TV as well. But I find all the layering of this stuff is why it had to be made as he gets older and older and older, not just so that his parents aren't there to see it, I guess, or your wonderful line about permission to narrate, but because the longer and more diverse and more layered his career gets, the insights that he and Tony Kushner pull out of his childhood, I think, become more resonant. Yeah, no, I I think that's right. Uh, there's one little nod to television. I mean, that, that is such a smart observation that there's no TV there. Richard Brody's observation. Yeah, Richard mind. Brody's observation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, and he is a great critic. Uh, great but critic. Uh, the um uh the one nod to television is uh that he his the job he's given at the end at the studio is for someone who works for Hogan's Heroes or is about to create Hogan's Heroes. And yes. there's a kind of uh, uh, suggestion that, you know, that's the entry point. But uh, you're, you're right that um, uh, for both Spielberg um, and his contemporaries, like Martin Scorsese often talked about this, that, you know, like their film education was not just going to the movies, but like, you know, the late, late movies, the early television really cannibalized the golden age of film. And so they were able to see all the sort of movie serials and the sort of 1930s, 40s noir movies uh, and Westerns uh, through television. And, and it is a very curious absence that there's so much focus on the, you know, the technical aspects of filmmaking and how he learns to make film that, that almost television has to be taken out of the picture. Like it can't be allowed uh, in. Uh, that, that, that's, that's a very um, uh, smart point. I, I want to um, maybe return to the Jewishness because you had- um, Ah, please. 
uh, mentioned uh, the Coen brothers and in your review, you know, you linked up um, um, a scene with, well, I think it's actually a more profound examination of Jewish identity. Uh, the Coen brothers, really fantastic movie, A Serious Man. Yeah. Uh, but perhaps, you know, the, the great American Jewish movie is as far as, uh, you know, um, uh, this one, um, but Jewishness is in uh, Spielberg, but you feel, I mean, and that, as against a serious man, um, where, you know, the weight of, um, or the, the absence of God is, is is very seriously felt in a way uh, that there's a kind of lighter Jewish identity. I'll, I'll run through my, my impression and let's see what you say about those, because in some ways it is a movie about assimilation. And yeah. it's the, the family moves from East, you know, where the Jewish uh, immigrants to America first came from Europe, you know, through Ellis Island, they move from East to West through the course of the movie, you know, uh, uh, ending up in California. And there is a sort of residual Jewishness in um, uh, in ritual and in form. Um, and then there's also, but we see like, you know, the assimilation just through what I, I think of as the return of the repressed, uh, which is the Judd Hirsch character uh, showing oh. up, you know, the, the Yiddish uh, uh, uncle, who shows up after the grandmother dies and who has a kind of ste uh, scene stealing uh, thing. And he is a little bit uncomfortable or almost like seen as a, you know, he unsettles the family because he's precisely a reminder of everything that they're leaving behind of, uh, uh, but also uh, perhaps a hint of the future because he's, he has a, um, an artistic career and, and advice on art. But then, and then at the end of the movie, you know, like he's going, uh, Sammy's in a, you know, what he describes as a very Aryan, like, high school with all these, like, you know, wasp gods and goddesses, uh, is anti, you know, picked on by anti-Semites, makes a, you know, Lenny Riefenstahl type peace movie, dates a Christian girl <laughs> you know, who wants to convert him. Uh, uh, and then, yeah, and has this like weird homoerotic interaction with the, uh, the Aryan anti-Semite that he celebrates. And I have this, you know, um, uh, one can see it as either like a damning confession or, you know, very intelligent self-criticism that there's a kind of acknowledgement that like, you know, the process of embracing Hollywood, embracing mass culture, embracing John Ford is that you're also like, you know, leaving some of that Jewishness of the uncle behind. Well, with, yeah, no, I, I, I mean, when you, when you narrate it that way, it's very, <laughs> kind of like a sort of a satirical picaresque you know and yeah. you got to give some of that to tony kushner who if you read about the way the film was written it was almost written as a series of therapy sessions where spielberg would sort of sit down and kushner would say and then what happened right <laughs> and and i think that you never want to underestimate spielberg as a thinker but i do think kushner comes towards a kind of conceptual intellectualism more naturally so you know spielberg is getting a lot of credit for this being one of the first movies he has a writing credit on in a long time but it's a co-writing credit with mm -hmm with Kushner, right? That's another dialectic, not just mummy and daddy, but, you know, Stephen and Tony, you know, writing it together. Yeah, but and, then, and then Kushner, what we should add, you know, is like been more engaged with Jewish issues uh, than Spielberg what, has, especially, you know, obviously in Angels. Uh, well, that's what I mean. And, and and he's a big part of the authorship of certain of these late movies. Yeah. I would say in a movie like Munich, I see Kushner's presence to a fault, which is you cannot see a better directed two hours and 15 minutes than Munich as craft. It's actually like savant-like 
mm-hmm. quality, but there's things in the writing that are that are you know I think mixed. But you know when you when you mention serious man, I mean the joke in a serious man is that you go from you know the shtetl to St. Louis and the structuring absence is the 20th century. You know, the structuring absence is the Holocaust and, and everything else. When the, the, when Mrs. uh, Velville, when, when Velville's wife shuts the door on the Dybbuk, she's like, and nothing bad will ever happen to us again. You know, it's (laughs) it's funny, you know, here, yeah, the Judd Hirsch character is almost like that Dybbuk, or he's like a figure from Isaac Bashiva's singer or from some deep primal Jewish past who shows up and does a few things. He like terrifies the family. He provides a link to show business that reminds us not just that movies started as a kind of carnival, but that there were always Jewish immigrants on the ground floor of that carnival. He's not a mogul. He's like a gopher, right? But it's in his blood. He does sort of play Yoda, I guess, to cross the blockbuster streams a little bit and give Sammy the sort of, you know, you got to do it speech. But he also violates the aspirational waspiness of the household. I love when he rips his shirt. Yeah. And he says, what, you've never rent your clothes before? You've never grieved before? <laughs> I mean, it's funny. And it's a little bit Saturday Night Live sketchy when Sammy does it himself. But, you know, that idea that not everything is supposed to be so buttoned up and repressed, because he's not just the return of the Jewish repressed. He's the truth of families, which is that people leave and people are angry and these feelings are hurt. When he says art and family will tear you apart, I think what he's suggesting is that art by its nature exposes who you are. And that's a hard thing to look at. Or if it exposes who your loved ones are, it's a hard thing to look at. And, you know, we've talked so much about memorable moments in the film. One that I find chilling and brilliant is when the the parents are finally having the, we're getting divorced speech with the kids, which is rendered somewhat abruptly without the big buildup and fallout that you'd think it's a short scene. And at one point, Sammy looks up and from his eye line, you see him reflected in the glass behind the family in their living room, filming everybody, which he's not doing. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's his imagination of himself filming it and exposing it. And in that moment, he has such disgust for the movies that he's made and for the, the, the the movies that he might make. So I think, you know, not just a story of kind of Jewish assimilation, but to use your superhero analogy as with him as Fableman, you know, great power, great responsibility and the different contexts he chooses in which to, to, to exercise that. I also think it's really funny that he casts Seth Rogen as the other man, not just because it's a callback for us Torontonians to take this waltz by Sarah Pauly, yeah. which has Sarah, which has Michelle Williams character ultimately spoiler, but, you know, ultimately choosing or, or being on the verge of choosing a life away from Rogan, but because Rogan is coded so much more in that kind of robust, earthy Jewish mode than yeah. Dana, who's playing someone whose Jewishness seems almost hypothetical, you know? <laughs> He, he, Bert is indistinguishable from a kind of waspy guy from the beginning. His Jewishness is always sort of vague. And the fact that she goes more with uh, his best friend, because Rogan, you know, couldn't be anything but Jewish if he tried. It's interesting. He has more. I mean, in, in a sort of Oedipal, and this might be a good way to end up in the Spielberg segment of it. Uh, but I feel like this is almost two movies in one. Uh, and they're both good movies, but one is maybe a little bit better than the other. Uh, one is the, really the Oedipal tragedy 
uh, and the sort of you know discovery of the family uh, uh, of the family secret. Um, and it's so um, interesting to me. I mean, you kept on bringing up Brian De Palma, but De Palma has the same story. Uh, if you watch the documentary about De Palma, like he discovered his father's adultery by kind of voyeuristically uh, following him uh, one day. So it's, it's, it's curious that you know, these two great filmmakers who are friends uh, both had the, this kind of voyeuristic um, discovery of um, parental um, uh, excess. And it, yeah. if the, the um, Seth Rogen character is the more earthy Jewish one, he's also the more artistic one. And that's why he ends up with the mother mm -hmm. and so he's so sort of a lot and he gives sammy gifts him with uh camera equipment uh, so that that plays in so there's a real oedipal connection between the the mom and the son and um i think martin scorsese did a sort of interview with uh, spielberg where he basically said the, the parts with the mother are the most powerful parts of the movie which i, th I think are true um and uh, added on to that that's one film and the other film is the you know the 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 youthful education of steven spielberg and how he becomes a filmmaker uh which we've all we discussed here also very interesting i think maybe at a little bit lower key of emotional engagement than the 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 romance of the mother like i so that's my that's that's my thought i don't know what well, you yeah, well, no no for sure the image where they fuse where they fuse and then depart from each other a bit is when the first time his mom gives him the camera or they're about to shoot, he frames Michelle Williams like the blue fairy yeah. in AI. Or also a bit like Frances O'Connor in AI where she's programming Haley Joel Osment to yeah. love her. AI, I think, is the Spielberg movie that's, I mean, now it's not misunderstood. Most people are you know, starting to put it in their top five or whatever. But that's where the Oedipal stuff goes to places that are just sort of like astonishing I mean AI sort of suggests that even after humanity is done and the apocalypse happens and we're all just you know the frozen memories of computers somewhere everyone still wants to climb into bed with mom I mean it's like a deeply that's a weird movie yeah, yeah. I was gonna I just wanted I, because you mentioned to Paul you'll indulge me for half a second which is I've always thought the most telling anecdote about both Spielberg and De Palma, where they stand in American film, and you're going to smile maybe when I say this, it's why I prefer De Palma, is they were both legendarily in the room when Lucas showed Star Wars. Yes. And the story goes that De Palma was like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen, and no one is going to get it or like it. He couldn't see the special effects. Yeah. And Spielberg said to Lucas, you're fine. You're going to make the biggest movie ever. Just put the special effects in. The fact that De Palma couldn't see it to me is both to his discredit, and it's why he's had the career that he's had, and it is to his eternal credit. And I love that if you dig really deep, De Palma actually co-wrote the opening crawl to Star Wars because he just wanted people to understand what the hell was happening in the story. Whereas Spielberg could see the future in a way and see what George was doing in a way that De Palma couldn't. But I, I come out of that anecdote admiring De Palma more. I, I admire the loser in that case. Just. Yeah. Just saying, because they they're never considered to be that similar Spielberg or De Palma, but I think they are secret sharers in a very deep way. No, and this is this is Spielberg's most De Palma esque movie, and I think I'm really glad that he's come up so much in this conversation because I think we've uh, uh, unwrapped some of that, which I, I don't think previous discussion has. No, no, um, well, and, I, and there's there's a critic. I, if he listens, I should give credit to for some of that too. He tweeted about it, a guy named Brendan Boyle, 
brought up the De Palma stuff. I, I mean, I think I did my Ringer review as well. But no, it's 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 fun to talk about. Certainly beats calling it a love letter to the movies, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yes. So uh, speaking of love letters to the movies, so the, yeah. uh, as I mentioned, uh, and this is how we could uh, end off the conversation. Sure. Um, it's uh, one of the nominees for Best Picture and uh, Spielberg is uh, on again for Best Director. I'll just run through the Best Picture uh, nominations. Uh, the uh, All's Quiet on the Western Front, uh, which I've been surprised by, has actually been picking up steam as a, um, a favorite of the uh, award season. Uh, but I mean, okay. Uh, <laughs> Avatar, The Way of Water, uh, The Banshees of uh, Inishern, Elvis, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, the Fablemans, uh, Tar, Top Gun, Maverick, Triangle of Sadness, and Women Talking. Um, and I'll just also mention uh, of those movies, the the uh, they have a shorter list for Best Director, um, and uh, which went to uh, Martin uh, McDonough for Banshees of um, uh, Daniel Kwan and uh, Daniel uh, Scheinert for Everything Everywhere All at Once, Spielberg for The Fablemans. Todd Field for Tard and Ruben uh, Ostland for Triangle of Sadness. So, do you want to say any uh, any thoughts on this season? I mean, the one thing I'll say is it seems a very diverse list, and it seems like many different kinds of movies. You know, from uh, Avatar, which is like you know a big blockbuster, to something like um, I'll mention Toronto's yeah, Canada's own uh, uh, Sarah Polly. Yeah, yeah, Polly for Women Talking, uh, which is like a much quieter. Not a blockbuster, uh, so, but uh, any thoughts on the list? I mean, I think that there is one not totalizing vision of cinema's future here, but there is a there is a sort of a, an emanation from some some not so deep near future here in the form of everything everywhere all at once, yes. and it's the beacon that I would just as soon we not, uh, you know, pick up or respond to or take over seriously. I mean, it's funny simply by not loving that movie because i actually gave it a somewhat mixed to positive review for the ringer simply by not loving that movie i came under fire for months from people who are like what is your fucking problem why don't you like this beautiful movie about love and tolerance you idiot you know yeah. which i find tends to happen with this kind of nice core stuff you know if you don't like ted lasso you know it's like we're going to murder your family if you <laughs> if you don't get that everything everywhere all at once is a profound movie then you are spiritually dead or you know as a critic recently on twitter has been saying you know if you're white and you don't like this movie and, and and it doesn't speak to you then you know you're a priori racist this stuff this is often the language of people who are insecure about the fact that this thing that they like is potentially flawed or you know um the, the idea that their devotion to it could possibly not be reflected by by the population as a whole so i see everything everywhere all at once as a as a movie that kind of it fits like don't hate the band, hate the fans, but yeah. <laughs> I don't. But I don't like the movie that much either because these guys are super talented, but they're also very undisciplined, uh, and I feel like they, you know, their craft is really good, and some of their ideas are very inventive, and I like how much it felt kind of like a comedy from the eighties where it's a, a collision of ideas as opposed to existing IP. But then you look at the producer credits and you see the Russo brothers who are evil, like. <laughs> evil people who are who 
who speak out of both sides of their mouths about the theatrical experience and try and pretend the Avengers has something to do with Antonioni, which should have them sent to The Hague. And it, it's hard for me to root for that movie. So I feel like Spielberg is kind of now being consigned to the past because it's a biopic yeah. about himself and cinema's past and the greatest show on earth and John Ford. The Daniels represent both a kind of superficially and I guess in terms of, you know, what the movie is about, you know, uh, authentically uh you know compartmentalized diverse view of american life and experience and those to me are the two front runners because when i look at stuff like banshees of Inna sharon or tar i see better or lesser variations on a lot of art film cliches i've seen those movies before even if i've not seen those exact movies before and there is part of me you know this may <laughs> You seem like I'm being trolly, but I'm not. That honestly looks at the list of best picture frontrunners and says, I would vote for Top Gun because I had the best time at that <laughs> movie. And I would vote for it not in spite of it being a yawning ideological void, which it is. I mean, it's like very, very, very empty, you know, almost to the point of, you know, of, of you know, maybe fascistically empty. I had a great time at that movie. I wish Joseph Kaczynski had been nominated for Best Director over, I don't know, Todd Field. Because I thought to engineer that movie around the star persona of Tom Cruise, he did an amazing job. For me to say this is twofold. I'm stating an honest preference, and the Oscars don't mean anything. So what's, what's interesting is when you have interesting outliers worth rooting for, the only category I'm going to watch with like my heart in my you know, hard on my sleeve a bit, and he has no chance of winning, is a Paul Mescal for the British film After Sun, because he's very moving and wonderful. And for, for the performance to be acknowledged is a victory in and of itself, because it's a small film that will now be viewed by, by many people. But he won't win, right? Mm -hmm. And conversely, when Kate Blanchett wins her third Oscar, you can't do anything with the performance in Tar but give it an Oscar. It's like you have to drive on a green light. You have to take an umbrella <laughs> when it rains. When Kate Blanchett plays Lydia Tarr that way for two and a half hours, what else do you do? You you you, you yeah. give her best actress, right? I mean, I feel like this year's Oscars are not the worst list I've seen. And some of the rivalries are, are rich and kind of symbolically interesting. I mean, I do think banshees of Inna Sharon, which could be called men not talking you know versus something like women talking in a screenplay category for adapted screenplay yeah. kind of fascinating contrast but uh you know i hope the producers in a, in a in an attempt to to get ratings i hope they fix best picture and the last thing we see is uh the disappeared scientologist guy miscavige reappear <laughs> on stage with Cruz to hoist the oscar for 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 best picture i did tweet the other day and got a lot of flack for it where i was like here's all the people steven spielberg's lost to directing oscar to and now he's going to lose one to the daniels yes you know? um I, I, people have actually told me that i'm wrong and i think i might be wrong they're saying that the fablemans won't win best picture but actually what will happen is spielberg will win a third best director award out of respect and you know that might happen yeah yeah no that, that seems like a the I, I think that's a very likely scenario. I, and I am glad you sort of set these two films 
um, uh, as uh, sort of counterpoints, because the, the, I mean, the Fablemans, if there's a critique of it or an observation, it, it is a movie about the, the past, about like Spielberg's past and also the, the filmic past, you know, going back to John Ford and also the, the early vaudeville represented by the Judd Hirsch character. And, uh, you know, I kind of agree with you. Everything, everywhere, all at once is, I mean, your foreboding is kind of right, um, that this could be the future just because there's this kind of um, sensibility which I think is coming out of video games and also maybe Japanese uh, anime uh, 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 or Asian pop culture of the smorgasbord of a work of art that just borrows from everywhere that doesn't necessarily have to have you know uh, follow clear narrative logic um, and that's also been there's a part history of Hollywood that has included that. I mean, if you look at the Marx Brothers movies, they've sure. had that. But 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 everything everywhere at all at once does kind of beckon to that kind of future, which is very different than the classical John Ford uh, uh, past that uh, Spielberg is evoking. So the the two films do pose an interesting sort of counterpoint um, as to the past and the potential future. Um, I'll just say though. I mean, to round out the Spielberg thing, though, it was a case that once Spielberg was sacrosanct in the same way that um, you're too young to know this. But in the early 1980s, when E.T. came out, there's a very nasty writer for the Toronto Sun named Mackenzie Porter, uh, who was, uh, uh, famously wrote articles on how you never go to public washrooms because, you know, who the hell knows what type right. of people go in there. But he wrote this, like, uh, uh, this art, uh, thing for the Toronto Sun against E.T., uh, how much he hated E.T. And that thing generated, like, more email than, uh, more mail back then. People wrote letters than anything the Toronto Sun ever did. And people were so upset. How could this guy, uh, who was admittedly a nasty misanthrope. Uh, how could he not like E.T.? Um, and they were like offended at the, the the concept. So in a weird way, like it does seem like it's where there's a kind of circular thing of um, uh, Spielberg has been displaced by his own children. Uh, that's also part of the Oedipal uh, uh, romance. At the well, I, I, think that's abs I think that's absolutely true. And I think that when you watch the first 10 minutes of Everything Everywhere all at once, it's beautifully made in a subtler way. It's totally naturalistic and it's showing an aspect of life, like the small business ownership and the pressures on the family and the generational differences and the frustration of this queer uh, uh, daughter. That's really quite striking for being livelier than a lot of, you know, Sundance movies or art house movies, but still essentially in a realistic register. And when it chooses to go into the sci-fi register, a couple things happen, which is yes, the appeal broadens, you know, and the kind of fanboy, uh, uh, you know, twitches of the filmmakers come out and are received in kind by an audience that is kind of looking for a Marvel movie by another means. But like most multiverse movies, the 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 the, the thinner you stretch everything. I don't think it makes it deeper or heavier by the end. You can have this play out as a cartoon or as two rocks talking at the end of time or as a fake Wong Kar Wai movie. It doesn't deepen what's being talked about. It just kind of stretches it thin, right? And I would say that about, you know, I would say that about this movie. I would say that about a lot of movies that have this kind of multi-universe, multiple reality concept. So I think you have a movie that for people who admire it, 
they see it as having such a diversity of form and diversity of representation around these issues. The other way of looking at it is like, why don't you just make the whole movie like the first 10 or 15 minutes if this is so important to you? Not because pop can't be profound, but you know, in my opinion, pop that is consistently narrating its own rules and its own profundity is failed. You mentioned the Marx Brothers. I would add Hong Kong, I would I would add, you know, mainland Chinese martial arts movies and Hong Kong action movies and Japanese anime. They don't narrate their own rules the way that everything, yeah. everywhere all at once does. It's constantly telling you how to watch, how to feel, delineating its own rules and delineating its own boundaries. It's like an instruction manual for itself. And that is so at odds with the idea of freeing, liberating entertainment. There's nothing that you can take from everything everywhere all at once that it doesn't tell you, that the characters don't tell each other. And I think that that's why I have such a hard time with it, despite all the skill. Whereas people look at Spielberg and they say, oh, he's a filmmaker of platitudes. And I'm like, well, yeah, if you take the platitudes at face value, I guess The Fableman's a pretty logy movie. But if you see through and talk around the platitudes, it's very multi-level. There's a, it's, it's, it's a multiverse of a movie. Yeah. So I just... <laughs> You know, the true it, multiverse is reality itself. Uh, uh, the, true, the, 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 the true multiverse is reality itself. And I'm certainly not one to say that age comes before youthful exuberance, but it's like, I don't know. The, it, it, the, the idea that this is the future that we're looking forward to is not making me super pumped. Okay, okay, good, good. So uh, on that note, uh, uh, I, I think a very fa fascinating sort of contrast between the two movies. Um, it's a good place to end this conversation. We've gone a bit long, but it's been a very meaty, uh, rich discussion. Yeah, thank uh, you for having me.